Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey, hey, good morning, church. How we doing? Good. Hey, we got some claps in the house. I'll take it. For those of you joining us online, we're incredibly excited that you're joining us there as well. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior hat pastor here, not Haster. It's different. Pastor here at First Baptist Hanford, and I uh, hope you guys are going to do your best to stay cool today and tomorrow and the rest of the week because it is a nightmare out there. Uh, we are continuing our series in Galatians that we started last week. It kind of has us walking through verse by verse uh, the entire book of Galatians, and I'm super excited about it. And so last week we really did a, an overview of the entire book of Galatians um, and kind of got context for why Paul was writing to the church in Galatia and that sort of thing. Um, but really the overarching theme of the entire thing is Jesus plus nothing. Okay? And that's largely where we landed on last week. It's largely where Paul is going to land quite a bit. Uh, but his letter to Galatia is kind of a a short message, a shorter version of the book of Romans. Now, if you've read the book of Romans, you know it's dense, it's full. Um, you have to read it numerous times. Like you read a chapter, you need to go back and read the same chapter because it is so dense. Uh, a lot of theologians believe that Galatians was really kind of the body that he used to write the book of Romans as well. And so if you're looking for a shorter read of the book of Romans, the book of Galatians is a great spot for you. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I don't have COVID. I, I, there's always a fear anytime you clear your throat or sneeze in public right now that people assume the worst. I do not have COVID. Okay, so um, we were talking about things. In, in the book, in, in the book of Galatians, Paul addresses legalism. He talks about showing how Christ brought freedom from the Jewish laws. Specifically, um, Christians are saved from their sins only by faith in Christ, which is an incredibly important doctrine for us to be able to understand. Justification through faith alone is what that doctrine is. So while we gave an entire overview of the book of Galatians last week, this week we are officially launching in to uh, the verse-by-verse -verse narrative, the scripture passages. So you can flip to Galatians 1, verse 1. We're going to walk through all the way through verse 10. If you have your Bible, it's great. If it's on your phone, that's okay. Pull it out, um, and you can, you can uh, track along. But as you are turning there, uh, I want you to think briefly really about what we talked about last week, this idea of Jesus plus nothing. What does that actually mean? Because nothing else gets you to heaven aside from Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. Nothing gets you to heaven aside from Jesus. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how philanthropic you are. It doesn't matter what causes you stood up for while you were here. If you did not claim the name of Christ and him as your Savior, then ultimately you will, be, you will stand condemned. It's literally Jesus plus nothing to be saved forever. So that's what this book is all about. This book is all about being saved. And for me, and probably for a lot of you, when you came to faith in Christ, maybe you were younger, I was younger when I came to faith in Christ, and so my parents explained it to me this way. Uh, came into my room and said, Peter, do you want to go to heaven? And what eight-year-old would say no to that question, right? It's like, hey, Peter, do you want a brownie? Yeah, absolutely. So, Peter, do you want to go to heaven? Yeah, of course I want to go to heaven. Great. You need to invite Jesus to come and live in your heart. Say this prayer with me. Boom. 
salvation, right? Uh, and, and while that's a, that's a very simplified view of the idea of salvation, honestly, when we get much more complicated than that, we start taking away from the beauty of Scripture, from what Christ did on our behalf. Because all of a sudden we start adding rules and regulations and different things that, uh, that we need to do. And so the idea of salvation, though, oftentimes can, can uh, get a little bit more complex probably than it needs to be. And so I'm going to make it hopefully, hopefully clean it up a little bit for us by going back to the book of Exodus. Now, a lot of you are like, hold on, time out. You're going to clear it up by going to the Old Testament. Yep, we're going to clear it up by going to the Old Testament. Now, if you aren't familiar with the book of Exodus, let me give you a brief overview, okay? Exodus is the second book of the Bible, okay? It's Genesis is the first book, then Exodus. At the end of the book of Genesis, we have a guy by the name of Joseph in Egypt, and all of his brothers are there, okay? And so the end of Genesis, what we have, the, the story of Joseph, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, is Joseph uh, gets sold, and he's got this really fancy coat that his dad gave him, right? Multicolor dream coat, for any of you who have seen the play. Um, so he's got this really fancy coat. His brothers get jealous. His brothers sell him off into slavery, tell dad that he's dead. He goes into slavery. Joseph, through a series of events that God has his hand over the entire time, ascends to number two in the Egyptian kingdom, right? There's Pharaoh and then there's Joseph, okay? And so uh, Joseph is a dream interpreter. And so what happens is Pharaoh has a dream and Pharaoh's like, hey, I need somebody to be able to interpret this dream. Does anybody know a guy? They're like, hey, there's this Joseph guy who's currently in prison. Do you want him to be able to interpret your dreams? He's like, yeah. Joseph interprets the dream, says, hey, look, there's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, Okay? And so after Pharaoh says, hey, that makes a whole lot of sense. You need to store up your grain. Joseph tells Pharaoh, you need to store up your grain for the seven years of famine so we got enough food to be able to last for the next 14 years. So because of that, Pharaoh puts him up at number two, right? Long story short, his brothers make their way to Egypt. There's reconciliation. They all hug. And Genesis closes with Joseph's family all living together in Egypt. Exodus then opens, the book of Exodus opens at that point. And what we see is that there is a new Pharaoh on the scene, a Pharaoh who had forgotten largely what Joseph had done, essentially saved the entire Egyptian kingdom. Okay, so any of you who feel unappreciated, imagine how Joseph felt at this point, right? Where he's like, I just saved an entire kingdom and now you have forgotten about me. The, the Pharaoh forgot about him so much, the new Pharaoh forgot about him so much uh, that they actually... Um, uh, he looks at the Israelite people, and this is Joseph and all of his brothers and their wives and their kids and their kids, and they had been fruitful and multiplied, okay, to say it nicely. They, like the, the, the Israelite kingdom grew and grew and grew and grew. And so this new Pharaoh not only didn't know who Joseph was, but on top of that, he saw this growing mass of people, and not like weight, but like many numbers of these people, like they were coming in, or, or they were in Egypt, and, and the new Pharaoh was fearful about it. So he's like, hey, you know what we're going to do? All of you Israelite people, all of you guys, you are now actually going to be slaves. And so the Exodus account is the time from the Israelites being slaves to the Egyptians all the way through um, to, to when they exit, Exodus, from Egypt, wander in the desert for 40 years, and eventually uh, get to the promised land. So that's the book of Exodus. Now, I know some of you are like, what does this have to do with Galatians? Stay with me. I promise we'll get there. Okay, so um, in the book of Exodus, though, once they are slaves, 
God raises up a guy by the name of Moses, okay? Most of you are familiar with the dude named Moses, right? He's not the one with the ark. He's the other one. Let my people go, Charlton Heston. That's the Moses that we're talking about here, okay? Um, So he raises up a guy by the name of Moses to essentially lead the Israelite people out of captivity, he goes, like, like, let my people go, the plagues, hey, let's go. And, and so he leads the Israelite people to the foot of the Red Sea. Uh, God, God separates the Red Sea for Moses. All the Israelites walk through. Uh, the Egyptians follow him. Um, and at the, at the other side, once all the Egyptians are through, or once all the Israelites are through, rather, the Egyptians get covered up in water. God delivers them. Yes, now... They're free, but this will begin their 40 years of wandering in the desert, right? And so not three months in to their delivery from, uh, uh, from the Egyptians, God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, okay? And we're going to press pause on that for just a second. So let's get back now to Galatians. When we're looking at the idea of salvation, okay, and we're looking specifically at the Exodus account. We literally have Israelite people who are in bondage. They are slaves. They can do nothing to escape their bondage on their own accord, except for God stepping in, bringing someone who is going to deliver them from that bondage, that person being Moses. Now, let's look at our own salvation. When we look at our own salvation, literally sin is bondage. All of us who call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior would say that before I was in bondage to my sin. I was a slave to my sin and I could do nothing to get out of that sinful nature apart from God raising somebody up by the name of Jesus to be able to deliver me from that sin. So when you think about the idea of salvation, a very easy way to think about that is to be able to think about if you are familiar with the Exodus story. If not, again, go rent Charlton, Charlton Heston's uh, most famous work and you'll be able to see it. Prince of Egypt's a great one too. But, or read the Bible. One of those three options is a great option for you. Um, but, if you're, but if you are familiar with the book of Exodus and largely just that story, what you need to come to understand is that has fingerprints of salvation all over it. The entire story as you're reading it really does play out in the same narrative of our salvation story and God saving us for uh, or from ourselves because God continues to intervene. So all that to be said, let's get to the book of Galatians now because we're going to come back to Exodus. And I know some of you who are like, I've been in Galatians for like seven minutes and I've read the passage ten times already. That's fine. We're getting there. Um, So like I said last week, though, the book of Galatians is all about the gospel and specifically the doctrine of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, Jesus plus nothing. So as we view this story, it can be helpful for us to remember that these believers were, or where these believers were getting their information from. So again, the church in Galatia had perverted the gospel by new teachers coming in after Paul had set up his church on one of his missionary journeys, I think it's Acts 13 and 14, uh, the teachers were telling people that in order to be saved, they had to have faith in Christ and live according to the law, which we are no longer bound by. So that's a good clue for everybody, right? Anytime that somebody says, hey, in order to go to heaven, you have to believe in Jesus, and as soon as that word and is placed in there, that's when we get ourselves into trouble. Okay? That's when we overcomplicate the gospel and we actually dilute what Christ did on our behalf. So 
Paul is beginning his argument regarding salvation through Christ alone right when we get started. It starts in verse 1 where it says this, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Okay, I'm gonna press pause there real quick. Okay, so this is a very standard Pauline intro. Okay, anytime there is a, a letter, anytime there's an epistle there oftentimes are called Pauline because Paul wrote them Paul's not female Paul is a male but they are Pauline epistles in nature the letter to the Galatians is one of them okay so this is a very standard intro for him he's introducing himself and not only is he introducing himself he's actually giving out people his or giving out his credentials to people he's saying hey look I'm Paul but what I also want you to know is not only am I Paul I'm not just your buddy who's writing you a friend we're not just pen pals I am an apostle Okay? That would have held weight with people. It's the same thing that like when, when you're sick or something like that and your, your mom, no, we won't mess with moms today. Your friend is like, oh yeah, I know what you have. Or you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh yeah, I know what you have. One of those two actually holds weight. That's why I decided not to mess with moms. It's like, my mom's always right. Okay, good, we're good. Okay, it's the same thing. Paul is expressing his credentials as an apostle. There would have been weight attributed to his name at that point, okay? And then he reminds them, hey, look, I'm not sent by man. It's not just some, some person who sent me. Peter didn't send me. John didn't send me. James didn't send me. I was sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all of the brothers and sisters that are with me. So he's expressing to himself, hey, look, my name's Paul. But not only do you know me as Paul, I'm an apostle, so there's weight attributed with that. I'm sent from God and Jesus, there's weight attributed to that, uh, and all of the brothers and sisters who are with me. It's the same thing when I come out here and I say, hey, my my, uh, we have made a decision as a church, me as a pastor, in conjunction with our board. There's always more weight anytime you say that. Why? Because you know there is a collective group of people that are trusted rather than just an individual. Right? So that's largely what Paul is doing here. He talks about the idea that, hey, I'm writing this to the churches in Galatia specifically. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. He is reminding them here about the gospel. He is reminding them what the gospel is. Let's continue in verse 6. It says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Paul is pulling no punches here. He's not being nice. He's not being kind to anybody, right? Paul is just saying, hey, look, if you are perverting the gospel of Christ, let you be under God's curse. I mean, that's not the peaceful, uh, loving Paul that we see in the vast majority of his letters. We should recognize this is how serious he is taking it. And then he says in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? 
Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So as Paul is writing this, we have to remember there is a great deal at stake. The entire mission to the Gentiles depended on the outcome of this letter. Let me say that again. The entire mission to the Gentiles depended on this letter. Because as we go back, just remember what we're talking about here is the Jewish community, and not just the Jewish community, the Jewish Christians were saying, hey, look, in order to go to heaven, you have to believe in Jesus and become Jewish. That would have been off-putting to a whole lot of Gentiles. And so because of that, Paul's like, nope, that's not the case. Anytime you say Jesus and, you're wrong. And that's largely what Paul is trying to talk through here. So if you take time to read letter as a whole, you'll discover it's, it's way different from the vast majority of Paul's other letters. It contains kind of the coldest greeting, right? He doesn't say, oh, I love you. He, uh, he does say grace and peace, which is kind of Paul's standard intro, right? But outside of that, it's, it's super cold. You'll discover uh, that it, it, uh, it contains the strongest language. It's the only letter Paul writes without expressing any sort of appreciation to anybody in the church, right? There is no praise or thanks, which is super unusual. It indicates how seriously Paul is taking this issue. He is taking it incredibly seriously. So after that brief introduction, one through five, Paul addresses those who are accepting the Judaizers. We talked about those, what, what that meant last week. Judaizers are people who wanted other people to become Jewish. Judaizers to become Jewish. He summarizes this controversy in 6 through 10. And as we read this, they're feeling like it, you may be harkened back to like a time in high school where like you did something you weren't supposed to do and your parents came into your room and they didn't like yell at you or anything like that. They just said, hey, I'm not mad. I'm just real disappointed. Right, like how that's so much worse. Like all of a sudden, like this guy who helped you set up the church is like, hey guys, you really, really missed the mark here. And that's where it starts in verse six. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly deserted the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You don't know it. I didn't know it before I did any, any research on this passage. But Paul's language would have made listeners to this letter remember some verbiage back in the book of Exodus. So remember how I said, think about salvation through the book of Exodus, right? Well, we have the same language Paul uses here that is going to make people think about the book of Exodus. This is a super common thing that authors do in modern literature. They use similar language or they use quotations to help place their reader, right? This happens a lot of time in poetry. There'll be like a quote above the poem. And then you're supposed to read that poem in view of that quote, right, like through the lens of that quote, this is the same thing Paul is doing here. Um, because when we last left off in the book of Exodus, Moses had just gone up to Mount Sinai. Remember we were talking about that? Moses was going to convene with God on the top of Mount Sinai. God was going to give him the Ten Commandments on these really big, awesome tablets. There, there was going to be an awesome beard that Moses uh, still had at that point. But Moses goes up and regardless of the fact that he goes up, no one goes with him, right? So it's Aaron, his number two in charge, and then all of these other Israelites who are like, hey, we're three months into this thing. What are we supposed to do? And so Moses goes up for too long, according to the Israelites. 
They didn't know it was going to happen. He couldn't text them, shoot them a little Facebook message, give them a phone call. Not that anybody answers phone calls anymore anyway. But he couldn't do anything like that. They didn't know how long he was going to be up there. And so the Israelite people, they end up getting bored. And not only do they get bored, they're like, hey, we don't know if he's coming down ever. I bet he's dead. So we should probably move on and do something else. So they go and they talk to Aaron and they're like, hey, Aaron, we should build new gods. And Aaron puts up no fight. He's like, okay, sounds great. We don't know what happened to Moses. So let's build something and worship that. And so Aaron's like, okay, quick, give me all your earrings. This is a great plan from the outset. Give me all your earrings and all your jewelry and stuff. All right, here you go. So they give him all that stuff. Most likely these things were probably would have been used to secure food and different, like different necessities on their 40-year trek. But instead of doing that, they're like, nah, let's worship something that we make. And so they get it together and they end up making this golden calf because they assume Moses uh, is dead. And so the entire time, God is up there. He's having this conversation with Moses in Exodus 32. And then in Exodus 32, 8, we actually see God tell Moses, hey, Moses, you might want to go back down there and get your people in check because they're messing this whole thing up again. Specifically in verse 8, it says this, they have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. Ah, very, very similar language to the language that Paul is using in Galatians 1, verse 6 where he's talking about the idea they have been, that you have been very quick to turn away from what I commanded you. So to us, if we're just reading Galatians, we're like, man, that's some, that's some pretty harsh language that Paul is using there. Like, I'm astonished you've been so quick to turn away from the gospel that we taught you. Like that, like, okay. That's, but to the, the, the people who would have been understanding of their Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, this would have been very, very hard language. Because Paul is saying, hey, remember when all your ancestors messed up? Remember that one time that, that all your ancestors, man, they, they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt? And then they went to Mount Sinai? And then, and then like Moses wasn't even gone for very long and they're like, guess we should worship a golden calf. Remember that? That's what you're doing now, Galatians. That's what Paul is referring to here. And even the word turn away in this section, it means to transfer your allegiance. It doesn't just mean like to turn around and, and ignore it. It means to transfer your allegiance. It's a word used to describe a soldier who rebels against his commander or deserts to the enemy, not just deserts and goes home, but deserts to his enemy. By adding to the gospel, they were turning away from it. And this is what marks off what all the cults are, all the isms are from authentic Christianity. They say yes to Jesus, but then add their own beliefs or add their own additional requirements. And this is, this is one of the reasons that we want to make sure that the way that we view Scripture, the way that we interpret Scripture is, is something that's called exegesis. When you exegete Scripture... What you are doing is you are reading Scripture and then pulling from Scripture your understanding of the world. There's a very poor way to understand or interpret Scripture. It's called eisegesis. And when you eisegete something, what you are doing is you are starting with whatever your own personal worldview is, whether it be political party or, or whatever. We'll go with political party because it's the easiest one to name. So you, whatever your worldview is, and then you are taking your worldview and applying it to Scripture. 
You're pulling verses out of context. You're using things to simply, to simply make your, whatever worldview you're comfortable with apply to the Bible rather than using the Bible to apply it to your, to, to create your own worldview from, right? And that's what the difference is between exegesis and eisegesis. We want to be careful with that because we never ever want to get into that trap of saying, hey, we believe this and something else. We never, it's the same reason that we use one translation of the Bible to teach from. Notice that we never have like, like ESV or the message or, you know, the children's storybook Bible or whatever it may be. And not that any of those things are inherently bad on their own, but we just want to be consistent in the translation that we use. Because what happens when you start saying, hey, for, for one section of my message, I'm going to use ESV because that really proves my point really, really well. And then another section we'll use NIV. And then we're going to use the message and flower up the language a little bit. And, and that'll really take, we never want to do that. We want to be consistent with what it is that we are teaching and preaching because we never want to fall into the category of having bad theology that, uh, simply because of the worldview that we want it to fit. And that's what was happening with the Galatians. They had a worldview. These teachers specifically, the Judaizers, these Judaizers had a worldview that they were trying to apply to the gospel rather than taking the gospel and applying it to their lives. And so as Paul continues, he reminds them that this isn't a gospel at all. What is happening in the Galatian church is not a gospel at all. Adding requirements to salvation isn't the good news of Christ. Adding, adding requirements to salvation is watering down the accomplishments that Christ made on our behalf. And if you thought his words were harsh before in verse 6, let's go to verse 9. Because as we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. That's tough. Let them be under God's curse. Paul isn't pulling punches here at all. He's saying that if you are presenting anything other than justification through faith alone, you should be under God's curse because it takes God out of the driver's seat and allows us to help be responsible for our own salvation. And that's never the case. That is never the case. And in verse 10, he backs it all up by telling them that, look, it, it, it almost sounds like he's kind of apologizing to him in verse 10, but like, like talking himself into it, Right? Where he says, like, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? He's telling him, like, hey, look, I'm not, try I'm not looking for your approval. Like, I'm trying to please God in this. So, no, like, hey, I'm being mean, but I'm being mean because I, like, I, I, I want to preach to an audience of one. I'm not trying to make you all happy. He says, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Truth be told, this has kind of been my verse for the past year, year and a half or so. And I think actually many of us in this room probably need to adopt this verse into their life. Because as followers of Christ, it should not be our desire to please other people. As followers of Christ, we should be entertaining an audience of one. We should be entertaining an audience of God. Our work should be to please him and to please him alone. And not in such a way that we can, you know, go and spout whatever we want to spout to anyone who doesn't yet believe or anything like that. Remember, this letter was written to the Galatian church. This was written to believers. It was the believers who were messing up in this, uh, in this case. He is holding the believers' feet to the fire because he understood that, like, he understands that they should understand what the gospel is. And anything beyond the, the preaching the good news of Christ crucified is heresy. 
And heresy is anything that's contrary to the doctrine of Scripture. And so that's largely what Paul is talking about here because Paul, he knows the order of salvation. He gets it. So the order of salvation, what I mean by that is he's not trying to get every non-Christian to stop acting like a non-Christian. That's not how it works. Think back to Exodus again, right? God didn't deliver the law, the Ten Commandments, to all of the Israelites when they were still in bondage in Egypt. He didn't say, all right, look, here's the law. Once all of you guys can figure this out and live accordingly, then I'll come and save you. That's not how it worked. God sent somebody. He said, hey, be obedient and faithful to this dude. Follow him. And then once they were freed from bondage, that's when the law was handed down. That's when they began to live moral, upright, standing lives. It's the same thing when it comes to our salvation. God does not expect you to be better before you come to Christ. God does not expect you to act a certain way before you come to Christ. So don't take this message as, as freedom to go and yell at people who don't believe the way that you believe. God doesn't do that. God, only ha God has harsh words for people who, sh who, who knew the good news, who already had faith. He had harsh words for them. Paul has harsh words for them. God has no standard. Hear me on this. God has no standard for non-believers except as sinners because they don't know yet who Jesus is. He has no standards for them. So why do we? Why do we assume that our morality should be projected onto somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus? It doesn't make logical sense. So if we are going around trying to, trying to perfect other people's, people's morality rather than going around and telling them about the good news of Jesus so they then can become holy, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. So again, don't take this message as freedom to go yell at people who don't believe the same way you do. And beyond not trying to, to please people, Right, not trying to please people, specifically people within the church, because that's what Paul is talking about here. You can't add to the finished work of Christ anyway. You can do nothing to help your salvation. Nothing at all. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. John Stott, he's a theologian, he says it this way. The work of Christ is a finished work. And the gospel of Christ is a gospel of free grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, without adding any, without adding of human works or merit. Or our salvation is solely due to God's gracious call. So, that's a fire hose of information for you this morning. What do we need to take from this? How do we apply it? How do we pull it out? There's two things we need to take from it. One, the glory of Christ is at stake. The glory of Christ is at stake. To add what Jesus has done is to denigrate Jesus. To add anything to it is to denigrate Jesus. To suggest his work to us was incomplete denigrates him. That may win people's approval, but it will never, ever, ever win God's approval. So the glory of Christ is at stake. Number two, people's souls are at stake. To pervert the gospel is to literally corrupt the only way to God. If you are perverting, the, if you're saying Christians, yes, you need to believe in Jesus and do something else, you're perverting the gospel. And that's what Paul's fighting against here, and he's fighting against here. And that's frightening. The issue of false teachers is a serious issue. 
Not just because God warns of eternal condemnation or anything like that, but because no one is immune. No one is immune from it. You are not immune from it. I'm not immune from it. Apostles aren't immune from it. Paul has a great conversation with Peter about this very thing. No one is immune from it. Bishops aren't immune from it. The Pope is definitely not immune from it. No one is immune from the idea of false teaching. The threat comes not just from those people outside the church, but probably more specifically those on the inside of the church who don't understand what salvation by faith alone means. And that's our responsibility to do so. If you have come to to a saving faith in Christ, it is now your responsibility to understand that faith by digging into the word of God. That's your responsibility. You said yes. Is part of it coming to church? Yeah, absolutely. Please come to church. We're thankful that you're here. Is part of it doing that? Yes. Is part of it doing Bible studies? Yeah, sure. But you have to read the Bible on your own as well. So number one, read your Bible. Do your best to understand your Bible. But also, learn about your Bible in community. If you do those things apart from each other, you're going to come out with some messed up theology, right? If you decide, I'm going to read my Bible in a vacuum, and, and there are, if you read a word wrong, if you interpret one word wrong, like there have been instances where even uh, pastors do this all the time. I've done this with Jeff before. Hey, Jeff, am I reading this right? Like, is what I am understanding in this right? Because if, if I'm reading this correct, it's telling me not to use the restroom in the Old Testament. Like, am I reading that right? And no, well, okay, let's look at context. Let's figure, okay, good. Thank you for correcting me. Like, if I were to read that in a vacuum, my bladder's exploding pretty soon. That's not a healthy thing. But then on the other side, if you're never reading your Bible and you're just listening to other people teach about the Bible, you could come out with some pretty jacked up theology. You have to do both. How do you know that what I'm saying up here is true? How do you know that, that uh, yeah, well, the, you know, the pastor said that it's justification through faith alone, so I'm going to believe that. What if it was justification through faith alone, plus you had to give us all of your money? And I was telling you, if you want to, it's totally fine. You can give. There's black. No, just kidding. But what if that was the case? And I was up here preaching heresy to you. And saying, hey, look, nope, just justification through faith alone. And there was something completely like something else that you had to do. You don't know because you haven't been, been spending time in the Word on your own. And so that's the beauty of it is that you need to read it by yourself. You need to discuss it with other people so you guys can push against one another. I fully expect if I preach heresy for you to come tell me that I'm preaching heresy. I fully expect that if I'm reading scripture and I misunderstand something or I don't understand something, that I can go to other believers, people in my small group, Pastor Jeff, other people that I respect in the church, and I can say, hey, look, am I reading this right or did I mess everything up? And most likely they say, well, you you messed everything up, but this is what it means. Perfect. And they get the opportunity to do the same. You have to dig into the word. You have to be able to to explain what salvation means to other people. 
You have to exegete, exegesis. You have to exegete the Bible correctly to understand what salvation means so that, and Jeff is going to talk about this next week, when it's time for you to share your story about how you came to faith in Jesus, you can also back it up with a proper understanding of salvation. Because if you don't, you're distorting the word of God. And you could rob Christ of his deity and what he did on our behalf if you express it incorrectly. It's our responsibility to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the book of Galatians. We thank you for Paul's defense of salvation. And not just salvation, but salvation through faith alone. Justification through faith alone. God, I pray that we would not pervert that message. That we would be able to articulate that it's Jesus plus nothing. And God, if there's people in here right now who have not yet said yes to Jesus plus nothing, to Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf, and Father, I, just, I, I would hope that they would pray along with me right now as we close the service in the same way we always do with our ABCs. They would say, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit it. I messed up. I sin every single day. I fall short every single day. And I recognize that, Father. I admit that I'm a sinner. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me, that he conquered death and was raised from the dead. And that all I have to do is believe in my heart and confess with my lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and, and I will be saved forever. So I believe that, Father, and see, I would choose to follow you every single day. I would choose to dig into your word. I would choose to dig into scripture to be able to properly articulate what salvation actually is, what salvation actually means, how we actually receive salvation so I can have those conversations with people. Father, we love you so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.